I'm Cassidy Hall. I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. <clears throat> Ready? Are you all good? I think so. Yes. Is this running? Mm-hmm. All right. Ready? Three, two, one. <laughs> okay, sorry, that's just for editing purposes later. <laughs> Welcome. Um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, this is, uh, a, you're going to see us do something we've never done before. We're going to do a live podcast. Um, so you're actually going to, you know, the, the joke, you're not supposed to see how the sausage is made. Yeah, you're going to see how the sausage is made. This is going to be really messy. Well, I'm a vegetarian, so this is complicated. Yeah, right? yeah. So. see, it's already a mess. Yeah. So what, what happens here is we're going to, don't feel free. I mean, generally the rule for us is if we can, I mean, it's not a problem, but I'll just say it. Uh, we're going to generally be quiet so that the microphone can pick up. Mostly it's about Rebecca and the conversation. Um, at some point, we might ask questions in the audience, and I'll pass around my phone, which will record, and I'll ask you to do that. It might make the episode, it might not. There's a lot of stuff we're going to see what makes the, you know, what makes it into the episode once it hits the cutting room floor. We'll see how that works. So, but um, first off, just welcome. We are encountering silence. We. We are encountering silence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, along our, with Kevin. Yeah. Along with Carl. Sorry. Yeah. Carl, who is not with us today. <laughs> but he's here. He is here. We told him we would bring his head on a stick, so we did. Uh, and he is currently, is he doing a retreat? He's leading a retreat somewhere. Yeah, okay. in New York. Okay. So, so. yeah, so the, the three of us, the Encountering Silence is almost at a year. Uh, in, uh, December 6th will be one year, or, and we've released almost weekly. We took a break during the summertime where we, we broke it out a little bit, a little less than a week. Um, and we're back on weekly schedule. Generally, the topic is silence, and we mean that broadly. Uh, the background of myself, Cassidy, and Carl all have similar backgrounds, but a, a different. That's a sports update. That's Kevin. a sports update that, that yeah. needs to be yeah. turned off. Yeah. That's, that's the <laughs> ESPN sound. Yeah, yeah. That's good thing that uh, that will not make the floor. Um, good thing I get to edit. Um, <clears throat> so. Yeah, so we have enough overlap, but we're also uh, quite distinct. Uh, I come from an academic background. I'm an adjunct professor at Sacred Heart University, and silence for me initially came out of my dissertation uh, as uh, silence as epistemology. So the idea that silence itself is a way of knowing the world and how this is extremely important for human beings overall, but how that's very important for theology. And the, kind of my dissertation argued uh, that, um, that the problem is, is that we actually lost silence about five or six hundred years ago. Um, there was a switch in the way we thought about human beings and that kind of all around the time um, that the Protestant Reformation is happening, the scientific revolution happens, then the Enlightenment happens. And so we kind of doubled down on words, ideas, thinking, 
Um, and that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's only a piece of the puzzle. And that they're a way of knowing, an ancient way of knowing of silence, of just bodily awareness is what we needed to recover in our modern times. So I come from that background and that led me into kind of the mystical um, and the poetic and the creative uh, and also very much about embodiment. So environmental stuff is a, is a huge issue for me. Uh, I then bumped into, because of my work, I bumped into Cassidy, who will tell you her background, but I bumped into her when she was working on the movie In Pursuit of Silence. Yeah, so I uh, began reading Thomas Merton in 2011, I believe. I was working as a therapist in Iowa and was really drawn to what um, New Seeds of Contemplation specifically his book was, was born out of. And so I traveled to the Abbey Gethsemane and fell in love with the place, uh, asked to stay longer and did. And then eventually it led to me putting in my 30-day notice and quitting my job and traveling to all 17 Trappist monasteries in the United States. Um, and I just was falling in love with silence as a meeting place for the true self and the meeting place for who I am and what I am. And of course, all of us know that we live in a world where silence is not prevalent. It's not something that's that we, we have to be very intentional about seeking it. Um, you know, we have social media, we have radios, we have TV, we have children, we have all kinds of things that that just burst up um, in our lives. So silence is, is intentional, but silence can also be very hard, as we know, and silence can be, you know, silence can be a dark night, um, and it very often is. But that doesn't minimize that it's, it can be a meeting place for oneself, and that was really uh, my big draw and my big chase into silence. And, so now I'm working on a documentary short about Thomas Merton and his hermitage years um, and kind of the contemplative aspects of that and the, the writing that was born from that time period. So, so yeah. And then through that, uh, Carl, who is uh, he's a lay uh, Cistercian, and so he's taken vows to a monastery in Georgia and has been writing kind of popularized fiction uh, popularized fiction, nonfiction. Try that again, Kevin. Popular, <laughs> popularized nonfiction about uh, the mystical, and so he writes books on Christian mysticism and uh, and Celtic spirituality, etc., uh, and has led people in uh, the recovery of kind of silence for the lay people. That it's not just a monastic calling. That all Christians really need silence, and a silence is essential for liturgical. Uh, for ethical, for the whole package. It, actually, Christian theology doesn't make sense if you take silence out of the picture. And so that, that recovery is an important piece for, for Carl and what the work he does. And so he leads retreats like he is this uh, weekend, and he's not here with us. So. And, and mentioning the Dark Knight, one thing that, that we're really cognizant of in our podcast is to address toxic silence, um, the toxic silence of you know, giving your partner the silent treatment or the toxic silence of silencing minorities, or the toxic silence of being reprimanded for having um, you know, different theological beliefs. Uh, so that's something we always are really intentional about addressing in the podcast, so we hope that that comes up today. And Rebecca was kind enough to join us and chat with us. So we are going to begin, actually what we like to begin with, when we are on Skype, it's really bizarre, but wonderful. But on Skype, when we are interviewing someone, we begin with just 30 seconds to a minute of silence. 
So we'll sit in communal silence for about 30 seconds to a minute. And then Kevin will begin with Rebecca's introduction and we will head right into questions. Right? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, they, that's, I'm, just, I'm just thinking about the- Kevin's uh, like, you missed everything. No. No, I'm thinking about the, the whole point of the podcast is I just wanted to say for us, the three of us met and then we decided, as Cassidy said, uh, it was important since silence really wasn't on our cultural maps, we wanted that conversation to be started again. And so that's, so one of the major issues, as Cassidy said, about toxic silence, but then the idea of, I love how you said that we have to actually choose silence. And I point this out to people all the time, like why do you have to make this a big deal? Um, well, things have drastically changed. The technical, the industrial revolution changed the world. And what I mean by that is we don't have silence automatically available to us. Right now there isn't even silence in this room. And while that doesn't seem like that's a big deal, we actually have brain scans. We know that's a big deal, actually. There's a part of your mind that's going, there's a noise on. There's like, and you don't actually disappear and get quiet. Before Industrial Revolution, you could just go outside. If you stopped talking, it would just be bird sounds and wind. You don't have that anymore. Airplanes are flying overhead. You have electric wires constantly humming. There's, you have to choose silence. And we don't choose it very often because it's uncomfortable. Um, we might have been silenced already, and so now we want to push back. So why would we choose more silence? So it really becomes this real issue, and that's why we raised the, the topic for the podcast. So Well, and to, to bounce off of that real quick. Yep. Um, you know, silence is a sound, and it's a sound with, you know, uh, extreme vast qualities. And even as Kevin was saying, even even before technology, right, mm -hmm. you would go into nature, you would hear birdsong, you would hear the wind blowing in the distance. Um, it, it's, it's, an, it's an intentional internal stance right. to be present to silence, to be present to who you are and what is speaking to you. That's right. Um, and that's what you know can host all kinds of spaciousness and vast, um, you know, infinite possibility. But uh, it's it is that internal stance. Um, Jim Finley talks about this internal stance, and he he says he's talking about poetry, and he said something to the effect of um, um, something about the poet cannot you know make the poem come to life but the poet can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the gift of the poem. That's right. And so that's when we, when we talk about silence, you know, again, there's no real silence, but there's opportunity to, to come, to come to any situation with that internal stance, so. Beautiful. So I think we should probably take our, so if everyone would just intentionally make that stance for a couple seconds together, and then we'll begin.
So I know I'm going to edit this at home, so I'm going to give a brief introduction here and a longer one on the, on the podcast when I get home. So Rebecca, Rebecca Bratton Weiss is a writer and freelance academic residing in rural Ohio where she runs a small echo gardening business. She's the editor of Convivium Journal and the manager for Patheos Catholic, where she also has a column suspended in her jar. Her poems and essays have appeared in a number of venues. She is a Pushcart and, and Best of the Net nominee. She and poet Joanna Penn Cooper have a collaborative chapbook collection that just arrived today, and you can get it upstairs from Dancing Girl Press. And she's in the process of seeking publication for The Peacemakers, a dystopian feminist sci-fi involving sex robots. I had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca Bratton Weiss, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. I'm so happy to be able to join you all. Yeah, and it's wonderful to be here at, at your conference, uh, Convivium. And, you know, one of, the th one of the things all of us are exploring here on panels is this idea of, of strange land. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the idea of silence as strange land, whether that be as a writer, um, or whether that be as a mother or, or whatever topic just comes to your mind. So yes, yeah, silence is a strange land. Um, really is a strange land for the reasons that you all have been explaining because it's so hard to find. And once you have developed a taste for silence, you then discover that you need it and you will go out into the wilderness and seek for it. Um, but the other respect in which silence is a, a strange land is kind of like if you set forth on a voyage across the ocean, um, silence is a little bit like that in that you will meet many, many things as Odysseus did on his voyages. Mm -hmm. um, strange monsters, mm -hmm. dragons, uh, friends, seducers. Um, mm -hmm. And as a writer, one has to go into that realm um, because so much uh, that we have experienced in our lives is stored there in our memory, the vast storehouses of our memory. I think that's from Augustine. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we then find that the, the things that we remember are still alive there, very, very alive, moving around like little strange sea creatures, uh, connecting with each other, perhaps um, breeding and producing new creatures <laughs> that now reside in your imagination. And so um, going into the terra incognita of silence for a writer is like setting off into uh, a strange country where you meet, um, there I met one I had known, that kind of thing. Um, and this is where so many of our stories come from. And if you were present for the the previous workshop, uh, Joanna Penn Cooper led us in, in an exercise that involved going down into the depths of oneself, and then another that involved going back to a remote memory. So that both of those, um, we took silence. Mm -hmm. we, we used silence to, to go there. I, I love, I mean, you're, you're so fascinating for me because it's not just writing. I mean, so, a gardener, a rider of horses, a, a mother, you know, a wife, uh, you know, it, it's, it, these things to me all seem like they have silence buried within them. 
Uh, and I, I follow you on social media, so I get to see when you're uh, riding your horses right. or something like that. And I'm wondering, do you find silence in those spaces? Do you find that it's the, the gardening, the, the horses, the, your children? Like, mm. where is silence for you? Oh, so I'm going to talk about horses then, because I yeah. always do like it. to do that. Yeah. Um, I think it was about six, seven years ago, I was at the Mother Earth News Fair, which is a bizarre conglomeration of people because you'll meet like wonderful hippie gardeners and you also meet some very strange kind of uh, local in a bad way people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I heard a talk there uh, by a neuroscientist whose name presently eludes me, and he had turned his attention to studying horses' brains and the fact that uh, the horse has a much better developed um, right brain mm. than we do, mm -hmm. and that when humans develop language, we neglected to develop that part of the brain that seems to actually do ESP. Mm -hmm. And if you watch a herd of horses, it's as though they communicate telepathically. So mm. you scare horse number one, mm -hmm. and it jumps, and the other horses seem to respond in the same way, not because they saw the first horse jump, but because that fear translated itself. Um, and so he talked about brain waves and communication through brain waves, and you know it sounds super weird, but it's it's actually the way organisms function. And he talked about the need to, if you're going to work with a horse, to put yourself into a position of contemplation, prayer, or mysticism so that that part of your brain kicks in. Um, because if it doesn't, you can't communicate with your horse. You can communicate by using certain physical aids, but you can't communicate the way horses communicate. Um, so I'm very bad at silence. Oh, I want constantly to be distracting myself. Oh, but before I go to work with my horse, I need to put myself into my horse's space. And so I will spend time just petting him, um, seeing how he responds. And you can very quickly see physically how he's responding, but I need to get past just that until I'm kind of in his zone. Um, and there have been times when I've opted not to ride because I decided it wasn't gonna be a good day for it. Um, and then there have been other times when I felt like maybe I shouldn't, but I did anyway. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I'm able to get past that fact that I wasn't in sync. But other times I'm just like, well, that wasn't a good ride. <laughs> um, so putting yourself into that position of, um, of silence in relation to another creature, I have not tried that with human beings mm. ever. Um, except for maybe my babies, while they were still babies. Uh, I don't know what that would be like to interact with another human being in that way, because it's a little frightening. Well, and with, with your experience of, of interacting in that way with horses and with your babies, do you feel like it's, do you, for you, do you feel like silence is a place of deep intimacy? Yes, yes, and maybe that's why I'm afraid of that with other human beings, because because intimacy comes with a great many demands. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if you're interacting on that level with a creature as simple as a horse or a pre-verbal like a baby, 
it doesn't make you don't immediately start to get that barrage of demands mm -hmm. um you are you are simply there you are there with the other being together um and if you're parents you probably have experienced this with your children when you when you know how they feel when you know when your child is sick without having to check any symptoms at all and when you know when your child is feeling better yeah yeah yeah, I, well, I mean, I, we can't go there all day because that would be an all-day conversation right. for me. That's, right. Because that's really the brain science stuff I was doing is exactly that, about, like, right brain and human beings wow. and prayer. And mis so, like, you just kind of are killing me. Wow. That, that, I was not ready for that. Don't die, Kevin. That was really good. So, um, so but it's, I want to push on that a little bit in the sense of I really like that point that, and I agree with you because I'm right with you. I um, I don't want to be that intimate with people mm -hmm. if I'm honest, mm -hmm. and I think that's what will stop me from being silent because I it is almost there is no barrier then because you're one, right? And you start to wonder, well, who do I want to be one with? And you start to look around. And you're like, I'm not sure I want to be. No offense, but I don't, I don't know you people, uh, and I'm not sure I want to be one with you, and you don't want to be one with me. So, uh, and so, you know, it's interesting you say that, and I'm kind of interested if this is gets you back to the writing, because you said you like to distract yourself and you like words, mm -hmm. obviously, mm -hmm. and stories. So do you think there's something to do here with spending some time uh, in that silent space with your horses, do you find the writing is better afterwards, or? Absolutely, because otherwise, I am, as I walk around, I'm beating myself up for something I said on social networking. I'm worrying that someone I like is angry at me. Mm -hmm. I'm experiencing intense anxiety over things that I can't even pinpoint, and then I start enumerating everything that's going wrong in the world and I'm like oh that that's why I'm anxious that's why I'm anxious but then there's that other pit of anxiety that you fall into and you don't even know what it is that's in there mm -hmm. that's making you anxious and um, when you're like that it's really hard to write about anything other than um, people feeling anxious which has a place in a story but <laughs> you don't want the you don't want the whole novel or the whole poem to be about that and you can't really write a good poem that way because you're just having this sense of um, abstract, uh, unidentifiable fear and you can't, you're not even t tethering it to anything physical or tactile. Once you can do that, you can deal with it, which is why, uh, for me, I love horror because uh, I have now depicted a horrifying scene, um, something which is a little surreal inexplicable and grotesque and terrifying and now I'm, now I have something to tie my anxiety to mm -hmm. but um, but while I'm in that place I can't do it I have to step away from that so yeah um, going going to spend time with the horses allows me to get out of the bad place for a mm -hmm. while so then I can sit down and, and go to a better place yeah our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in this 30 seconds of silence.
So I'd love to to go to the the flip side of silence um, in terms of how we've been talking about it already and discuss um, toxic silence and silencing. Um, and I wonder if you would be open to just sharing any ways in which you've experienced toxic silence or being silenced in your career or in your life. And yeah, well, I'm a Catholic woman. I've been silenced my entire life, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and I lived in religious kind of semi-community type situations. So it was constant silencing, and it's knowing what you can't say, and the long list of things you can't say, and the words you can't use, especially as a woman. Um, and then I taught in Catholic academia, and uh, that meant knowing what you can't say. Um, but then I said some things anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and once I started blogging um, around the same time that uh, the, the menace of Trump was looming, and I very quickly started addressing that, mm-hmm. um, I was uncivil, and I was... Uh, unkind in my speech um, <laughs> and that doesn't go over well you're supposed to just let, let racists alone um, you're, you're supposed to be kind to them mm. um, <laughs> and you're supposed to be silent but and let them speak um, because otherwise you've deplatformed them and, and you don't really value free speech. God, even, even that word supposed to, supposed to, is just silencing, silencing. Silencing, yeah. yeah. So I, did, I lost my job of 11 years teaching at a Catholic university, and I loved my work. I had wonderful students. Some of my former students have come to this event. Um, many of my students were much more brilliant than I will ever be, and they do amazing things. And I did have some, some coworkers there I respected greatly. Um, I had some other co-workers there who were absolutely toxic human beings, mm-hmm. um, and I, some of them had kind of waged a campaign against me and collected evidence of things that I had said, also evidence of things I hadn't said because they like made copies of things from a Facebook page of a woman whose name was similar to mine and then said that this was me. <laughs> Um, there's that's, a lot, of, that's, that's a lot of effort. They, they, these put a, people put a lot of time into following me around. Mm. They listened to recorded um, sp- uh, talks that I'd given at other events. So, um, you know, thanks for, for loving me so much, whoever you creepy people were. Um, but yeah, I, I then lost my work. Um, this did open up for me different possibilities because it gave me a certain amount of publicity. Um, I got, I've been able to do this wonderful work with Suzanne Lewis for Revolution of Tenderness, um, and I've been able to edit the Convivium Journal, and I got the job as the uh, manager for Pathios Catholic, which is very much about giving voices to different Catholics, even if we all disagree with each other, Mm -hmm. and this is why people are confused by Pathios, and they uh, they're like, I can't believe I just said, saw this thing I disagreed with because I've been following your page and I liked the other things and now I saw a thing I disagreed with, I will unfollow this page. And um, the whole point of what we do is to, to provide a sense, this is what the Catholics are saying, like it or not. Um, and then I became involved with an organization called Catholic Women Speak and Catholic Women Speak exists simply to give voices to women in the church. Um, And uh, really the only voices that we don't 
uh, try to amplify are the voices of women who try to silence other women. If mm. what you want to say as a woman is shut up other women, that I don't feel is something we, we want to amplify. Um, and we were involved um, in October in a protest in, um, in Rome. It was, this was a very small part of a larger event, a symposium and a book launch, which brought together global women uh, from all over the world, uh, all different ages, uh, different places in their religious journey, uh, lay women, religious women, um, powerful voices were there. Um, but this was not something that the media was going to pay any attention to. What the media noticed was our protest of about 20 women at the Vatican, and um, one woman was almost arrested when the uh, Italian police showed up. Um, but this kind of caught on, and I kept reading reports of our, our protest. What we were protesting was that in the synod uh, on young people in the church, lay men had been given the opportunity to vote, but lay, uh, no women, no women at all were given a vote. And it is, in fact, the case that of all um, sovereign states in the world that have voting rights, only one remains in which women have no voting rights, and that's Vatican City. That's the people who decide mm -hmm. my religion. Mm -hmm. The people who decide stuff for my religion have decided not to include me in it. So, um, you know, and some, some of the women in our group would say, well, until women are ordained, this won't be solved. And that's not the purpose of our group. It's simply to say that our voices need to be included. Our voices need to be included in the decisions that are made for women's bodies, for women's participation in family and in community. Um, so yes, I've experienced bad silence, and I have also experienced the wonderful opportunities to, um, I don't want to say oppose that. I don't know what, I don't, I don't know, yeah. to, to make the voices heard. Yeah, I, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I've known you really not that long, but um, your life to me has just exemplified courage. And, um, you know, and, and we're different, we're very different, and we, we probably don't see eye to eye on everything, and that's fine. Um, probably on most things, though. But, I think we do. But anyway, okay. <laughs> but that's beside the point. The point is that uh, wh where do you get, what sustains you? Where do you get that courage? Where do you get that energy to stand up for these these lost voices, to stand up for what you see as truth and love in the world? I mean, it sounds exhausting. I don't feel like I'm at all courageous. Um, there are people I look at who are much more courageous than I am. And my great heroes of the past were all more courageous than I am. And also out there doing more things. Um, in a sense, I feel like I'm cheating because I have access to social media, so I can just get on Twitter and make a statement. Um, but Dorothy Day was um, actually feeding the poor. Um, and um, I met her when I was too young to remember, uh, really? when I was a baby. My father used to go and visit her and argue with her, and he finally <laughs> said, you know what, go, go start your own community, and he did. And that was why my life Wait, was Wait, she said that to your she father? She told that to my father. <laughs> 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 she 
Yeah, she said, go start your own community. Why don't you? Because he was getting on her case because she didn't make her her people, as he said, weed the gardens. Um, (laughs) Which he did when uh, he made me weed his gardens, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But I like to think that um, that early encounter with Dorothy Day, um, which I've heard about a lot, maybe maybe I, I got some tiny little spark from mm. her um but I'm really a tremendous wimp and I'm very lazy um and I would rather just make a lot of noise on social media than go through the hard work of changing the world I don't know where to start for one thing um I think it involves being with a lot of people and I don't like many people I like you all <laughs> um, everyone who came for this event you're all people I really like and it's wonderful but changing the world means interacting with people you don't like um, but I um, I'm also Jewish in ethnic origins and was brought up with a lot of our Jewish ritual and tradition and hearing the story of the Holocaust at a young age has a profound effect I think on every mm-hmm. Jewish child they wanted to kill us. They killed so many of us. And just recently in Pittsburgh, they started killing us again. Um, and I keep thinking, what would I have done if I had been around at that time as a woman who doesn't look very Jewish? I look very white. Oh, I could easily pass as Aryan. Oh, whatever that even means. Mm. <laughs> and I want, I whatever's happening in the world today, I want it to be the right thing to do so that when you look back uh, in history, uh, who were the people who spoke out? I would like to be one of them, uh, even if mm-hmm. I didn't do a great job of it. I, if my words are recorded, I want them to be words that perhaps uh, future generations wouldn't be horrified to read, that my great-grandchildren wouldn't be ashamed of. I don't want to. Um, go for the the false and easy compromise that we look back on in history as the terrible mistakes made by people who were building the wrong bridges instead of the right bridges. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wonder if it's almost as if as soon as we pronounce ourselves as courageous and brave, we stop doing the work. Hmm. Um, at least in my experience, uh, it, it, it feels like we always have to be striving for more because suffering is ever-present. Um, and as, as soon as we back down from the solidarity of suffering, uh, of the marginalized, of people that are suffering in any way, um, I think we, we lose that connectivity with the work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems to me, too... Uh, I understand the humility, um, and I appreciate it. And um, but, you know, being at the conference for the last couple of days and listening to what the work that goes on here, I, I feel like this work is important. Um, I remember the the panel yesterday that I went to with um, all the you and uh, all the women that were talking about the kind of part two of the liturgical cupcakes. Uh, um, that that was interesting to me because I kept hearing every woman on that panel mentioning about being silenced Mm -hmm. and then how that silencing somehow opened up something. 
And there was a sense that everybody kept talking about going into the wilderness. And at one point, somebody said something about relearning again. Yes. And it feels to me that, like, here, this is the connection with silence, that, like, a place like this is where we're learning to be our voices mm -hmm. again. Yes. And what does it mean? Yes. And I th so I think for you to support that, I think, is important and courageous work, you know? So, you know, just to... Thank you. So I think, thank you for that. Um, we have, this could keep going because I have a million things, but I have to, I have to ask you this question. I've been dying okay. to ask you this question. So again, I follow you on social media and I remember at one point you said that you went on a pilgrimage toward T.S. Eliot stuff. Yes. And I really yes. need to, as a person who loves poetry and loves mysticism, I have to ask you about your relationship with Eliot. It's a weird relationship. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. imagine it would be. Four quartets. Yes. 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 So, um, so I, I received a very uh, white Western civilization classical education, which I'm very grateful for. And I think that as a feminist, I shouldn't step away from that. I, I need to resituate mm -hmm. myself in that and look for the voices that should have been included instead of just shutting the rest of that out. And Eliot, of course, was a huge part of that because Eliot was all about we've lost our tradition. Uh, in, um, in the wasteland, a lot of that is a project of kind of bringing back the, the fragments that he sees of a, a shattered civilization, you know, shattered, of course, by the Great War. Included in that is not just the great quotations from the great works. It's also music hall songs. It's weird little ditties. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I love about Eliot and also James Joyce, that oh, mm -hmm. their idea of, of Western civilization is much more inclusive than a lot of the people who love T.S. Eliot would like to admit. Right. Um, and so, yeah, my, uh, my sister and I many years ago started on a uh, uh, a pilgrimage to visit all four of the four quartets. The first one we went to was um, the Dry Salvages in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Then we went to Burnt Norton uh, in England. And then there was a gap of many years because my sister lives in England, but I could no longer afford to go over there. Um, then I went back uh, and we went to, um, we went to Little Gidding, which mm -hmm. is actually the, the final one. Um, we went to Little Gidding, and I had a kind of mystical experience there, which I don't have very often. Um, and then just back in May, um, I went, we went to East Coker, and we completed our pilgrimage. We didn't do it in chronological order, but that actually seems kind of fitting. Um, <laughs> and that's where T.S. Eliot's uh, ashes remain. Mm. And I went in, and I talked to him, and I was like, Elliot, you got to come back and rein in your white boys. <laughs> there are a lot of the the professor who first introduced me to the four quartets, uh, who was a person who I I revered for many years um, because of his love of beauty and poetry, sent a letter around to other academics telling them we needed to vote for Trump because of the babies. Uh, and we should ignore his errors in style. And I thought, you're dead to me. Right. Um, uh, so this was why, you know, I, I feel sad that so many people who love the great books and who taught me the great books have, I believe, turned against everything that's beautiful 
in Western civilization. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, but Eliot, Eliot was uh, was about bringing back the the shattered images. Um, uh, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. Mm -hmm. And that gives us a kind of reminder of the fact that we live through many apocalypses and each time we have to rebuild. Mm -hmm. um, and there's silence there too, the silencing of a civilization. Um, I wish I'd thought of this, the, the poem of the horses where, uh, you know that one? Yeah. Um, where af after the, the great third war, everything goes silent. And, and the radios are destroyed, and you don't even know what's happening. And then into this silence, suddenly, the wild horses return. Mm. Mm. It makes me emotional. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Wow. Um, I know we're running a little tight on time, yeah. so I want to be cognizant of that. Um, and I, I have two kind of final questions. We always ask our guests if they have a silence hero, mm -hmm. someone living or dead, famous or obscure, who embodies the richness of silence for you. And then I'm also wondering if you might have a poem you'd like to read mm -hmm. for us um, sure. of your own, hopefully. Yeah, I can do that. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so one of my silence heroes is of course Dorothy Day and you know like we all love her and we constantly reiterate her and I don't even care if I'm being banal that's fine <laughs> <laughs> and then my other one is Leonard Cohen mm. um, which is funny because I always turn to him t through his music and I will sit sometimes I will close my writing by listening to Leonard Cohen and I will only listen to him alone because my husband doesn't like his music mm. and I just said that <laughs> I just exposed my husband <laughs> I, can cut, I can cut that out if you don't want it in I let it he won't hear it he won't hear it it's up to you and it's know. one of those I, I'm not going to share this music with anyone who doesn't love it yeah. uh, and I might not even share it with someone who did love it I'm keeping him to myself but he did uh, he did spend a great deal of time in contemplation yeah. and he was also a very physical person mm -hmm. and so for me he is a reminder that entering into silence and contemplation doesn't mean giving up the body mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> That's right. So um, I think I'm going to read a poem I wrote. It's not one of my technically best poems <laughs> but um, I it was inspired because Jessica who's here uh, and Joanna <laughs> refer to millennials as milliners uh, <laughs> because autocorrect changed it. <laughs> and so what started out though as a, a, funny, a funny coincidence ended up turning into a very serious poem and I, um, this I think has been published in US Catholic. They bought it from me so if it's not there yet it, it will be. Uh, it's called Milliners and I want to read this one because it's a tribute to my Jewish grandfather. Mm -hmm. um, and to all of the Jews who did not survive as long as he did. Uh, milliners. Suddenly I burst out laughing because my friend once had her autocorrect change millennial to milliner. And it's funny to imagine just switching out the words. Milliners are killing chain restaurants. Why don't milliners go to church? <laughs> my great uncle started a milliner's shop in Brooklyn. And for a while, my grandfather worked with him there until they went out of business. The Pope said women didn't have to wear hats anymore, Grandpa said, in case you were wondering why milliners don't go to church. <laughs> Later, he worked in a novelty factory, 
making those big apple magnets, shot glasses, and keychains for the kind of person who goes to New York City and comes back with a cheek keychain. When I was 15, he tried to give me and my sister t-shirts that said, I'm a virgin, this is a very old shirt. <laughs> my mother, frowning, nixed that. His body humor skipped a generation. <laughs> Grandpa was in France during World War II. He never talked about the war much, about being over there swapping cigarettes up against a whole vast army of men who believed that he would be better off as a lampshade. He taught me how to fish in the ocean, how to clean the cold guts out of a flounder, both its wide, surprised fish eyes looking at me from one side of its head. How did I get here, the fish asks. I don't know, I say, interpreting it metaphysically. Over the years, he buried three wives, but refused to get a new TV because it was more frugal to have his son keep fixing his old one. The last time I saw him before he died, he'd grown small, frail as paper, concentrated down to a single point. I remember how he sat in his wheelchair. Six million Jews, he murmured, and shook his head. It made no sense. I'm not laughing anymore. I'm thinking of all those broken skulls and ash thinking of how the bones come together and rise again, but also how I have no idea what it is to live with every bit of hope cut away. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, it's just actually way more appropriate to just end in silence after that poem. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, www.encounteringsilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence please visit www.patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being.